Greetings, friends, and welcome to another summary edition of, of Sustainability Now here on WFMPLP Louisville, your forward radio broadcasting from the top of the historic building at 106.5 FM and live streaming wherever you may be on your summer vacation or elsewhere uh, at forwardradio.org. Hey, folks, that's also the place to go. If you uh, want to hear a replay of this or any other local program or share it with other folks, you can find all the podcast versions of our programs available at forwardradio.org. And while you're there snooping around on our website, why don't you take a chance to become a part of our community radio station? We really cannot do it without you. We rely entirely on listener support to keep us on air, and it only only $20 a day to run the entire station because of our volunteer power. That is quite a bargain that we can afford, Louisville. So go to forwardradio.org, click donate and chip in what you can today, and maybe click participate and become a volunteer with the station, either behind the microphones or behind the scenes. Maybe you've got an idea for an access hour, want to do a one-time show, or maybe even a weekly program like this. All of that is welcome at forwardradio.org. There's room for you in our station. Well, Folks, I am so excited to finally be bringing you a very special talk uh, that I've been wanting to get on the air, and this seems like the perfect time to do it. We're going to talk about poop today and a talk from Dr. Nicholas Kawa, an anthropologist at Ohio State University, on the other side of our food system, the use of human waste as an agricultural resource. Dr. Kawa is an anthropologist at Ohio State University, and this talk was hosted by the University of Louisville's Department of Anthropology way back in February 26th of 2020, and I'm finally bringing it to you now. Prior to industrialization, human excrement was commonly employed as a resource for agricultural fertilization. Following the advent of the hydraulic sanitation system, however, it became increasingly channeled into waterways rather than reincorporated into terrestrial agroecosystems. To counter this train trend, more and more cities in the U.S are looking to treated sanitation waste or biosolids as a sustainable source of agricultural fertilizer. This presentation reports on a collaboration between Ohio State faculty and students in anthropology, architecture, and landscape architecture to design and implement a demonstration garden that makes legible the hidden processes by which human waste is transformed into an agricultural resource in the Midwest. Ultimately, this presentation considers both the limits and the possibilities of challenging social taboos surrounding human waste and the implications it has for our food system. I love it. You guys are really going to enjoy this treat. So let's talk biosolids here on Sustainability Now. And, and while we're listening, get your pencil sharpened and your calendars out because I'm going to bring you your community action calendar at the end of the program. So stay tuned, my friends. But now I take you back to February 2020 with a great talk by Dr. Nicholas Kawa on the other side of our food system here on Sustainability now. You know, most of our sort of anthropological attention has really been focused on productive sides of the food system and the consumptive side, and much less time has been spent looking at the end result of that food we consume, how we manage that, how our own social and cultural biases might prevent us from engaging conversation about how we manage this as part of a sustainable food system. And so that's what I want to touch on today. You know, one of the things I'll be talking about today is sort of how we approach the history of sanitation and its relationship to agricultural production. Um, but in the latter half, I also want to talk about how can we translate anthropological knowledge and research 
um, not just into research publications, but also into physical spaces or into landscape level installations. And so I'll talk about this project that we developed at OSU this past year to kind of bring the story of how we utilize um, human bodily waste as a resource and kind of translate that into a space that people can interact with and have you know, forms of, of kind of experiential knowledge uh, around some of these questions that we're investigating. But just, you know, briefly to point out, my current research examines the people and processes that enable this transformation of human uh, waste into an agricultural resource. And I'll talk a little bit about the history of this practice and some of the benefits it offers the food system. Um, and then I'll sort of shift gears and talk about some of the contemporary research I've been doing um, in the city of Columbus and also in the city of Chicago and then I'll talk more about this garden project. Um, the project began with uh, a series of, of pretty simple, maybe naive questions, you know, like what happens when we flush, which is sort of a naive question, but, you know, opens up all these worlds of how we use infrastructure to manage kind of basic everyday bodily realities. Um, the other question that I was really kind of fixated on is, you know, is human waste really just waste, or might it be something more? Um, and part of the reason that I started asking this question was um, it kind of grew out of my previous field research in the Brazilian Amazon. And I think anthropology is exciting when it forces us to kind of question just taken for, for granted aspects of our everyday lives. And um, when I started working in Brazil, I came to realize that historically in Amazonia, um, either inadvertently or intentionally, uh, human bodily waste was reincorporated into soils in ways that led to, uh, you know, uh, soil environments of elevated fertility. And so it, it made me think about, well, is human waste really just, um, you know, this, this sort of noxious substance that we have to deal with, or is it actually something that could potentially be uh, recognized as a resource or uh, provide some uh, kind of productive benefit? Um, so, in this first section, I want to talk a little bit about how human bodily waste was historically, um, in many different cultural and social contexts, actually identified as a resource, and only how more recently has it been labeled or mobilized as a form of waste. Um, so, a lot of the research that I was doing as a graduate student was focused on these sites known as Amazonian Darkers, or you might know as uh, Terra Preta or Teja Preta in, in Portuguese, or Teja Preta do Índio, which is literally in Portuguese just Black Earth of the Indian. Um, and so, I'd been working in an interdisciplinary team of soil scientists, plant ecologists, and agronomists that were interested in these sites, in part because historically the Amazon was seen as this unforgiving environment that um, you know, uh, was hostile to complex societies' development or hostile to the development of agriculture. And the soil in particular was sort of identified as being this limiting factor. Um, and and uh, what we come to identify is that there are these, you know, um, extensive areas of the Brazilian Amazon and other parts of Amazonia where people had fundamentally altered the soil in a way that made it um, you know, more productive for various types of agriculture. And a lot of that is just through depositional practices or deposition of, of organic waste and organic matter, um, which could include everything from like palm fronds and manioc peels and cacao pods and burnt logs and sticks and charcoal is an important part of that, but also fish bones and animal remains. And so uh, it also appears that human waste too uh, was an important component of 
um, the formation and origin of uh, these soils that to this day farmers seek out because of their distinctive fertility. So this here is actually a papaya plantation outside of the city of Manaus, a city of two million people, um, and uh, a family, a Japanese immigrant family, uh, came to start farming this area, which is a huge Amazonian darker site, um, I think 200 acres in extent, um, and have been farming uh, papayas on this. Um, but they've been specifically, you know, a lot of people specifically plant papaya and a couple of other cash crops on these sites because of their distinctive fertility. And so I was interested in how, you know, human waste was kind of part, um, or at least contributed in, 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 in part to um, these distinctive soil environments. And that then led me to, to look at, is the Amazonian case anomalous, or do we see in the historical and archaeological record uh, other instances in which people are managing bodily waste, or it, at least inadvertently is it, it working its way back into the soil that provides some sort of agricultural benefit. And perhaps the most notable and kind of salient cases um, you know, that I found, um, we can see in East Asia, there was incredible developments around the management of, of, of human waste, of poop. Um, the term that's oftentimes used in the literature that's a euphemism is night soil, and night soil is essentially just human bodily excrement that's been you know, removed from a, a privy. Um, but we see in early modern Japan, um, people had uh, you know, collected uh, night soil and, and trafficked it out into the countryside, especially when we start to see um, agricultural intensification happening and a demand for um, fertilizer. In fact, in Edo, which is now Tokyo, it was prohibited to dump this material into waterways because that was seen as a waste. Um, and we see that you know, this eventually emerges as a commodity. And so people start trading night soil for produce, and eventually they start trading it for precious metals, including silver. Um, and so there's this whole commodity market that emerges around the management of um, night soil as a, as a fertilizer. Um, similarly, in Japan or in China, in early modern China, especially in the south, uh, we see um, uh, agricultural intensification occurring, and a lot of uh, farmers are starting to seek out night soil as uh, an agricultural resource. There are cases in which, like people have documented, these elaborate like outhouses along these roads so that these farmers could attract travelers and passers-by to leave their nutrients there on their farm. Um, and a lot of farmers actually ended up leaving, um, you know, uh, the rural countryside and moving into cities to become full-time night soil collectors. And there's an incredible, like, you know, system of sort of valuation around that. So in wealthier districts or in wealthier neighborhoods, the night soil was actually, had a special premium on it because those households um, had a richer diet and ostensibly there were more nutrients in that particular matter. So class also mapped onto um, the, 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 the excrement that people are producing and how that in turn was valued in agricultural systems. Um, we see um, night soil depots emerge and, and a lot of people start to become involved in this elaborate network of night soil trade. There are even really kind of fascinating accounts of where night soil boat operators are getting hijacked by these essentially like ship pirates in which they see like night soil coming and so they take over these boats to, to be able to sort of capitalize on it. Um, and you know, up until the 1970s in parts of southern China, you would see night soil collectors uh, coming to households 
and they would pay you to take that night soil off your hands. So this is a complete, or out of your privy. So it's a complete inverse in terms of how we think about and value our bodily waste today. Like today we're providing or paying for a service to rid that material from our house. And in China, you know, uh, up until very recently, in, in, in numerous parts of that country, um, you know, people were paying you to, to access that. Um, you can even see, you know, examples of it sort of appearing in, uh, in, in poetry. A, a student of mine, uh, Cindy Chen, grew up in China and had been working on this project with me. Um, and she had uh, found this, this translation of this, this Chinese poem. Early in the morning, the magpies cry. The newlywed daughter-in-law is carrying excreta on a pole. Liquid from the excreta stains her new trousers. The hot sweat soaks into her embroidered jacket. The commune members praise her. And mother is pleased, I'll tell her that she has a good daughter-in-law. I won't even unpack all of the complex kind of, you know, social relations that are embedded in this, but you know, this just points out the sort of salience of, of night soil in everyday life. Um, next I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the metabolic rift. One of the things we find is that, you know, not only in East Asia are people uh, collecting night soil and carrying it out into the countryside, this is also a common practice. Um, in Europe as well, and so, you know, in early sort of industrializing cities like London and Berlin and Paris, we see the same practice, which you have night soil collectors emptying um, cesspits and privies, carrying that material out into the, into the countryside. Um, and in the case of London, you know, as that city began to expand, um, night soil collectors had to cover greater distances, which, you know, led to, um, presented certain challenges to the, the recycling of this material from uh, the urban center. In addition to that, we start to see the development of new technologies that actually change the composition of cesspits and privies. So we see the introduction of the flush toilet. Social elites start adopting the flush toilet so you don't have to go down to the privy and sort of rub elbows with the neighbors. You can sort of comfortably uh, you know, uh, go to the bathroom in the privacy of your own home, but all of that material and the water from it is actually going down into the same source, and so this actually dilutes that material in cesspits, and that adds extra complications to it and also devalues that material. Um, that, you know, further complicates things as we see um, the population growing and cesspits start to leak into water sources, and so we see the emergence of these huge cholera outbreaks um, in the mid-19th century. I have some stats on this. Um, between 1831 and 1866, Brit uh, Britain was ravaged by four distinct cholera epidemics. It lost over 50,000 people in the year 1849 alone. So obviously, this is a huge problem. Um, and so there's a lot of debate in Europe about well, what do we do? Um, we start to identify that uh, these leaking cesspits or privies are contributing to the contamination of drinking water. And so a number of major European cities um, that had already started, at least in my understanding, historically started developing uh, sewer systems. Sewers were largely developed to handle storm water. Um, and when cholera starts to emerge, uh, the sort of um, you know, the sort of logical decision that they make is like, okay, we have to start directing or diverting um, sewage and, and human waste into these uh, sewer systems as well. And so this is how the hydraulic sanitation system is essentially born. And we're still living with these consequences today. So 
Um, on a rainy day like today in Louisville, our sewer system is both taking stormwater and rainwater, but also all of the other wastewater from people's residences. And when that system is at capacity, where does that material go? Um, most cities have what they call combined sewer outlets, and so that material just goes right into the waterways. And so that's why you never want to go swimming in your local creek right after a major rain event, because you'll be swimming essentially in raw sewage. Um, of course, in a diluted form. And so a lot of cities have now been trying to kind of retrofit that system because of this problem. But, you know, this combination of rainwater and sewage is really uh, an artifact of this development in, in late in industrial um, Europe. So, you know, the, the sort of adage that sort of emerges at this time is that you know, if we just direct this material into the sewer system, that that kind of solves the problem. There was a perception that, um, you know, running water wasn't uh, susceptible to contamination. And uh, there was this kind of phrase, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. So if we just kind of direct this material out into the rivers, into the Thames, and then out into the open ocean, then we have this sort of issue solved. Um, and this is what, you know, the scholar Jamie Benedictson describes as the culture of flushing. Just kind of keep calm, flush the toilet, everything is okay. Not everybody was on board with this sort of mentality or ethos. And uh, Marx, in particular, uh, was very kind of critical of this shifting sort of attitude and this uh, emergent sort of infrastructural practice. Um, and he said, you know, during this time we start to see a break in the metabolic interaction between man and earth, driven by the removal of soil nutrients under capitalist ag agriculture and a ne neglect for their systematic restoration. So his point was, prior to this era, you know, people would consume and excrete, but that material would return back to the land. And under this period, there is essentially a disruption. And so this is what uh, environmental sociologist John Bellamy Foster describes as the metabolic rift. So there's this a fundamental kind of break in terms of the socio-ecological systems or human sort of reciprocity with the earth. And so you can see this in um, both in uh, Capital Volume 1 and Volume 3, Marx comments on this. And he says, you know, excretions of consumption are the greatest importance for agriculture. So far as their utilization is concerned, there is an enormous waste of them in the capitalist economy. In London, for instance, they can find no better use for the excretion of four and a half million human beings than pollute the Thames with it at heavy expense. And in, uh, earlier in Capital Volume 1, he quipped, all progress in capitalist agriculture is a progress in the art, not only of robbing the worker, but also of robbing the soil. Um, and so this is where we start to see this kind of critical examination of how we're managing our bodily waste. And rather than returning it to the land, we're kind of sending it elsewhere um, and treating it um, as a pollutant. I'm going to shift gears now to, to kind of uh, my research that's looking at contemporary uh, systems of treated sanitation waste and how there are ongoing efforts in the US and other countries to essentially mend the metabolic rift and to work with existing uh, hydraulic sanitation infrastructure and take uh, sanitation waste or sewage sludge, which is now referred to euphemistically as biosolids, and that term has been adopted by the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and looking at the ways in which it's being managed today. Um, so, you know, my question was really, can modern sanitation systems um, use treated human waste um, also as a resource? And 
I've been doing a lot of this research in Columbus, Ohio, which conveniently is the city in which I live right now, but it's also an interesting case study um, because in 2017, the city achieved 100% beneficial reuse of its sanitation waste. And the way that people that I've been interviewing um, working in wastewater treatment have said is that, I forget the exact date, but in, in the early 2010s, um, the incinerator in the city, as, as one sanitation worker described it, it you know, it took a dump. It, 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 it broke down. And so the city is thinking, like, either we need to pony up $30 million to get a new incinerator to incinerate this waste, or we can think about different sort of pathways by which we can return this material to the land and use it as a resource. And so they started thinking more um, seriously about developing um, different pathways for managing it. And that has been um, the, the path they've committed to uh, ever since. I'm not sure what's actually happening in Louisville, but I know in the other big cities in Ohio, Cleveland and Cincinnati both incinerate a considerable amount of their sanitation waste, and then uh, other portion of that gets landfilled. And you know, one of the reasons why people are moving away from incineration, well, well cities that have invested in incineration kind of want to sort of stick to it, but others are, are looking at other pathways because incineration also has impacts on air quality. And so I was just at a conference last year in which the city of Cincinnati is really thinking about its long-term plans. They have lots of incinerators that are well within sort of dense central parts of that metropolitan area, and it has problematic consequences for, for air quality for residents, and so they want to move away from incineration and think about um, beneficial reuse. In uh, Ohio, and in Central Ohio specifically, um, there are four primary pathways for beneficial use that I came to recognize through my research, and so I just want to talk briefly about those. And there are really all these ways in which this material kind of insinuates itself into our lives, but oftentimes is not publicized, or usually is not something that is shared with the broader public. Um, so in a lot of cities, and in Columbus in particular, um, compost products have been developed, and these are being used by landscaping companies, sometimes they're being used by home gardeners. I've talked to a number of home gardeners that think like, this is the secret to the best summer tomatoes, is using uh, the city's uh, composted sanitation waste. And in Columbus, the, the product is branded as Comtil, that's sort of unique to the city. But many other cities have developed their own compost products. Uh, I visited folks in Washington and Tacoma, and they have Tagro. In Austin, they have Dillo Dirt. In Milwaukee, which has actually been producing uh, a product for probably the longest time, and they've been working on this kind of um, um, you know, investment in biosolids since the early 1900s. They have Melurgonite, which is actually sold at uh, home gardening stores all over the country. Um, there, have other, there have been other attempts at kind of branding uh, compost products that have been less successful. So Clearwater, Florida had a product called Clear Sludge, and you can imagine that everyday, everyday home gardeners were not super stoked about buying Clear Sludge. Um, but Comtil is, is a product that uh, takes sanitation waste, applies it to wood chips, it's treated over 30 days. Oftentimes these piles, are, or in these piles there are these um, little uh, sort of uh, pathways for air to be injected in here. Thermophilic microbes are doing their work, um, and as these piles heat up, they're burning off you know, potential pathogens. And this, and under the EPA's regulatory guidelines, is considered a Class A product, which means it can be applied anywhere without any sort of permit or um, you know, permitting process. 
So in an early iteration of, of some of our demonstration gardens that we were working on at OSU, we developed this uh, garden outside of my building, Smith Lab, uh, called the Pop Garden because it had popcorn and, and amaranth and uh, sorghum and other crops that you could pop. But we also used calm till as a fertilizer, and so some started to affectionately refer to it as the poop garden. Um, and here we provided some signage to kind of, you know, uh, hint at the fact that passers-by might have in some small way contributed to the fertilization of that space. Um, in addition to composting um, products like Comtil, there's also uh, a, a liquid um, form of biosolids that in the city of Columbus is between 8 or 10% solids. And this is actually being injected underground into farmers' fields and largely being used by uh, large row crop farmers producing commodity crops like corn and soy that are going on to become animal feed or potentially ethanol. Um, and so what's uh, a benefit of this is that it can be injected right uh, underneath the soil. One of the problems with some of these products is they do have a distinctive aroma. And so by injecting it underground, you don't necessarily have to deal with those problems. There are other forms that are kind of dried or desiccated that they refer to as cake, which is an interesting term that they're using. And those will be sort of surface applied. Um, but in, in Columbus, we're largely doing uh, liquid injection. And these are uh, classified by the EPA as class B, so they are treated, but there are still some sort of recognizable levels of pathogens in them. All of the biosolids are treated within uh, US EPA uh, regulatory standards as far as heavy metals, um, but these do have some uh, remnants or pathogens, and so when these are applied, uh, the field can't be accessed for 30 days, and there's signage that's sort of put up so that if people have concerns or comments, they can, they can do so. In addition to that, we see these forms of ecological restoration, and so in parts of southeastern Ohio, um, uh, biosolids are being used in old degraded mining landscapes in which large troughs are being dug, uh, biosolids are applied, and then these fast-growing hybrid poplar varieties are planted on top. And so in these areas where there's really little remaining soil, it's pretty much just exposed rock. It's a way to rehabilitate these sites. Um, but also Ohio mulch that's working with the city of Columbus is then able to harvest those poplars and use that uh, as a mulch product. And so um, this is also another uh, huge part of, of Columbus's portfolio of biosolids use. And then lastly, there are efforts at using this material for energy production. So there's a number of waste to energy firms that are taking biosolids or sanitation waste and numerous other forms of organic waste, capturing methane from that, which can be used as biogas or converting that into electricity. And so Quasar is one of the big players in Ohio that's been developing these biodigesters, sometimes working in concert um, with uh, city um, or municipal kind of sanitation districts and building them next door so that that material can be diverted. Now, of course, there are public concerns about some of these different uses and applications, and probably the one that caught my attention initially was just the concern about smells. And so there are different ways in which smell can be mitigated. Composting helps with that, and so the compost products that are um, produced by um, Columbus and, and in other cities oftentimes are less aromatic, and one of the kind of major barriers to public acceptance is like, people are more likely to use it if it doesn't smell like the sewer, and so that's something in which there's been a lot of active research, and a lot of active, you know, um, kind of debate in, um, 
in, in sort of management of, of biosolids. One of the unfortunate consequences of these waste to energy production firms is that they produce a lot of effluent. So after that methane gas has been harvested, there's all this effluent that needs to go somewhere. And so in parts of northern Ohio where I've been working, they've been developing these 10 million to 15 million gallon lagoons in which that material is then directed. And you can imagine that there aren't a lot of rural communities that are like, hey, bring in a 15 million gallon lagoon of like various forms of waste, including you know, treated human waste, to just kind of come and hang out in the neighborhood. Um, and so there's a lot of concern about those lagoons um, and also the, the, the smells that are emanating from them. So I've been working with an undergraduate that's been developing an honors thesis on that issue. Um, in addition to smells, as I mentioned, pathogens is also a common concern. Once again, Class A products you know, have undetectable levels of pathogens on them, so it's you know, largely a non-issue, but some of the other forms of biosolids do, and so there's concerns about are there ways in which they could potentially be threatening to human health. But really the concern that I think has become most prominent in recent years is what's a general term that's uh, emerging contaminants. And so the EPA regulates um, you know, heavy metals that are in the waste stream. And, um, you know, and that's been, that was historically a big problem. But there's a recognition that there are hundreds of thousands of industrial compounds that are streaming through our, our, our waste system and our sanitation system, of which we know not a whole lot about their long-term sort of consequences. And so oftentimes when I'm talking to people that are um, skeptical of the use of biosolids or concerned about biosolids application, usually emerging contaminants um, is where they kind of focus uh, their critique. That includes the residues of pharmaceutical products that we consume and excrete, um, but also the residues of personal care products, um, and then all sorts of forms of industrial waste that are uh, directed into the sanitation system. Triclosan is one example that I love kind of highlighting that's sort of an interesting story, um, and I have some information about this. Um, you know, I was talking to a soil scientist and he described it as a pesticide. I've since, you know, identified as an antimicrobial or antifungal agent. Um, the reason why triclosan is in our waste stream is that it was commonly used in antimicrobial hand soaps. And even though those are now sometimes being sort of phased out, they're still um, present. And it's also in your Colgate Total. So if you brush your teeth with Colgate, Colgate Total, triclosan is in there. It's like 0.05% by dry weight, but it's there. And Procter & Gamble fought to maintain it in uh, their toothpaste products because it's good at fighting, I don't know, gingivitis or fa fighting sort of oral bacteria. Um, of course, it makes its way into the waste stream and it appears in biosolids. And you know, while it might be helpful um, as an agent in toothpaste, um, it's also been identified as posing certain human health risks, including disruption of sex and thyroid hormones. Um, and there's a lot of concern about triclosan and other similar products that can contribute to broader bacterial resistance or the rise of so-called superbugs. So these are some of the problems that we're sort of managing, in which we have these wildly complex forms of waste that are making their way, um, or, or this wild array, I guess I should say, of, of different sort of uh, contemporary chemical compounds that are being used in different uh, everyday products and are finding their, their way into biosolids. 
Um, and so, of course, people working in sanitation are like, well, if we stopped putting all these things into our waste stream, we wouldn't have a problem with them in our biosolids. And for me, I think our toilets and our sinks are kind of these cultural black holes. And like, intellectually, we know that when we put stuff in there, like somebody somewhere has to manage this or some system has to process this. But like, it's not really my problem. And so our everyday sort of habits and practices kind of just like, well, I can just discard that and it will just go off and, you know, and I can just kind of forget about it. And so I like to kind of riff on this. Um, but, you know, for a minute, you know, if you think about all the things that you might put down your drains or toilets besides waste and excrement, which include toilet paper, tissues, tampons, toothpaste, dental floss, baby wipes, shampoo, shaving cream, soap suds, matches, ashes, pet snakes, solvents, slimes, fats, grease, goldfish, paints, condoms, bleach, and the list goes on and on, and that's not even the stuff that's being um, you know, dumped by manufacturers and um, businesses. And so I think one of the real challenges of, of managing biosolids in their application is how do we manage this wild array of different kind of consumer goods um, that are being incorporated into the waste stream of which we don't really know much about their sort of long-term consequences or impacts. Um, and I think, you know, when people sort of dismiss biosolids and say, like, all this stuff's going into them, I don't want any part of it, um, but, you know, people working in wastewater treatment are also pointing out, well, we have complex, you know, uh, systems and tens of millions of dollars of infrastructure in any sort of municipal um, district that's, you know, trying to treat these uh, issues. But rather than sort of blaming biosolids or blaming wastewater treatment, we should also be looking further up the pipe and thinking about what are our everyday consumer practices that might be contributing to these problems. Now I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about um, education and collaboration and kind of outreach. And so I've given you a little bit of the historical background in terms of how people have managed waste cross-culturally and, and across time, at least in sort of key case studies. And I've talked a little bit about some of the things that we've been noticing in our contemporary uh, systems of management. Um, but one of the goals for our project, we got a small C grant from Ohio State to um, really kind of look into the system, but also try to share this with broader publics. And so our question is, how do we engage different types of audiences that maybe don't care at all about anthropology or what academics have to say, but might be interested in some of the facets of the system and some of the challenges that it presents, as well as the benefits it might present for, for sustainability. And so a couple of semesters ago, we started building a research team that included uh, undergraduate students in anthropology and landscape architecture and architecture. We also had a master's degree student um, from environmental studies. Um, we collaborated with folks in landscaping services. Uh, one of them is, is uh, Luther here um, and the orange shirt on, on uh, the right. And he was actually a student in one of my anthropology classes but had been working in landscaping services for 16 years um, and is now a PhD student in our cultural studies program. So he was like this ultimate sort of um, insider that had all of this sort of expert knowledge about how biosolids are, are being used and applied, but also um, was, you know, an academic and scholar. Um, and so together we started um, learning more about the system. We started learning that biosolids are being used all over Ohio State's campus. It's just not something that's being shared with us. 
Um, and so I started working with the students to put together kind of personalized essays and even forms of art that we could put into a booklet to share um, with uh, colleagues and friends and the broader public. And so this led to our zine. Um, for those of you who are familiar with zines, there are really these kind of DIY booklets that sort of become popularized in like the punk rock scene, but also in queer and anarchist literary circles. And they're really just kind of DIY, you know, like word putting together this kind of haphazard collection of photographs and art and personal essays um, that are designed not to be like super pretentious but accessible and things that you know people who maybe don't want to spend a whole lot of time in the academy might be interested in reading. Um, as part of this experiment, we started doing watercolors with Comtil compost. So you know we started producing art with the very material itself and thinking about it as an artistic medium. Um, and then the students and I started working on these essays to talk a little bit about the history of sanitation, its relationship to agriculture, and thinking about sustainability. And, you know, what I think is also important about the zine is that, you know, academic scholarship is something that I do, something that I care about. I want to write peer-reviewed articles in part because my job demands it. But they're also deeply exclusionary, in part because, like, not everybody has access to the subscription services that you know, uh, publish those works, but they're also written in language that's usually not intuitive for, you know, um, you know, people in the general public. And in addition to that, you know, for undergraduates, it's very rare to be involved in sort of formal academic publication. And so what zines provide is an opportunity for our students to get feedback from us as faculty, to craft, you know, essays, and then to be able to go out and share them with the world. And, um, you know, and that's something that I found to be really gratifying. And in addition to our you know, personal publication and printing of this, I think we made a couple of hundred copies to share with um, project collaborators and, 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 and friends and, and people that have been involved with that. But this zine actually got picked up by an independent publisher in Portland, Oregon, Microcosm Publishing. And so they're now selling it online and will be distributed in independent bookstores. And so, you know, for a lot of our undergraduates like Shamil and Cindy Chan and, and Lucas Sitoris, it's like, okay, something that they produced as an undergrad is going into an independent bookstore like Powell's in Portland. Um, and we think that that's cool. Um, in addition to that, though, you know, as I mentioned, we wanted to kind of think about how do we communicate aspects of the system and some of the, the questions that it raises not just in sort of a literary or textual form, but also as um, a garden. And so we started developing um, a demonstration garden or designs for a demonstration garden in this sort of central green space um, uh, here at Ohio State. Um, and so we had been working with the landscape architect that was a little bit skeptical of our plans um, but nonetheless um, was willing to hear us out. And so working with my friend Forbes Lipschitz, who is a, a landscape architect, we started designing the site which we could kind of tell the story of how our waste becomes a resource. And so initially we were thinking we wanted to plant corn and we wanted to make a connection between that sort of agricultural production and uh, the sewer system or, you know, going to the bathroom. And so we were kind of thinking like, well, we can have corn and then we can just have a toilet and sort of make that sort of you know, connection uh, clear and uh, direct. And this was a very, you know, kind of wild early conceptual design in which it looks like, like Willy Wonka's gla great glass elevator with like a toilet floating in it in, the, in, in a field of corn. Um, but after working 
with um, uh, collaborators in the city of Columbus, they were concerned that this would send the wrong message. Pretty much that like raw human waste is just going out into fields. And so they wanted us to also highlight all the infrastructure that enables these processes. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board. We started working with a colleague in architecture, Justin Diles, that started thinking about uh, architectural pavilion that we could incorporate into the site. And so this is what Justin came up with. Some people say it looks kind of like a dinosaur. Some people think it sort of mimics the winding path of a human gut. Some people refer to it as the shit snake or the crap monster. Um, but you know, regardless of how you sort of interpret it, um, it was sort of an interesting, evocative design. And, and part of what we really liked about it is that Justin wanted to also kind of innovate in the use of materials. And so the design of the structure is actually reliant on um, the use of uh, foam, plastic foam that's derived from recycled plastic bottles. And so the eventual structure that we built is constituted from 38,000 uh, recycled water bottles uh, and their architectural, um, uh, or there are resources for architects that are, are drawing on you know, recycled plastics. And so this is something that Justin wanted to work with in part because they allow for kind of more fluid designs, kind of distinct forms of, of architectural design. Um, so eventually we were able to get clearance from the campus landscape archi architect. We were able to clear out the sod, um, put down our uh, comtil compost. We were broad forking it to kind of, um, you know, break up that soil a little bit that was really compacted. Um, and then eventually we were able to plant corn. We got some donations from the campus farm. This is um, a pioneer, a DuPont pioneer hybrid. That pink, I think, is some neonicotinide, it's not a pesticide sort of application. But it was sort of interesting. We had this like, you know, state-of-the-art sort of GMO corn that we were like planting with dibble sticks, like in like sort of classic sort of traditional like Mayan planting practice out in the middle of campus. Interesting juxtapositions. Um, we also wanted to uh, have some sort of pavers and some spaces where people could um, walk around on, on the site uh, without stepping on the corn. And we wanted to incorporate biosolids into those pavers. So we started working on different recipes of soil cement. A lot of those tests led to failure. So eventually we just uh, you know, poured uh, concrete um, into forms and then sort of textured that with uh, comtil compost and then laid those down. And then we also wanted to have space for people to sit. And so we came up with this bench uh, that was inspired in part by this old Saturday Night Live skit, The Love Toilet. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but if you haven't, you can go home and YouTube it. It's fantastic. Um, and so we made a similar design, except there are three toilets that are sort of adjoining. Um, we called it, yeah, it, sometimes it's referred to as the menage a toilet. Um, but we put that there so that people could come and sit. And also, once again, sort of make reference to the fact that um, we're trying to make this connection between what happens in the bathroom and how that material is eventually used. Here's just a little bit on the sort of design of the pavilion itself uh, and another sort of landscape level uh, picture of it. It's actually every single one of these pieces we hand constructed. So it's a very artisanal process. We took this... Uh, these sheets of foam, and uh, they're thermoform, so you heat them up in this massive ground oven that we built, um, and then bend them around these other forms. And then uh, these buttresses are actually also individually formed, and then epoxied or uh, you know, pretty much glued onto these sort of big sandwich 
pieces. So every single one of those were made by hand and we had a small army of undergraduates from anthropology, architecture, and civil engineering working on that. But in the end, it became these big three component parts and there are only six bolts that hold the whole thing together. Um, and so we were able to finish that up in August. It was a couple of months of very intense work and much more work than we thought it would ever be. And when we did finish it, we also put these large format graphics just to highlight these processes in very kind of straightforward terms for people to think about uh, their waste. And then we had some additional um, information here that was provided in this kind of back lounger space so people could have a little bit of a guide to interpret the site and understand what it was trying to uh, share. And what was cool is that, you know, eventually it became part of sort of that central space in campus where people would go and text their friends after class or go and read or sometimes kind of hang out, especially while the corn was high and, and found themselves a little space of solace in the midst of, of campus. Um, and then eventually when winter came, or before winter came, um, you know, we mulched this and then we, we planted a small cover crop. I won't get into all of that. Um, so that is a little bit of, of, of that project and, and how we wanted to kind of translate uh, the story of how we use our waste as a resource. And I have just a few kind of conclusions and then we'll sort of open it up for discussion. Um, but in the Humanor Handbook, um, written by Joe Jenkins, who I also got the pleasure of, of interviewing. This is essentially this kind of modern Bible for composting your waste that's been adopted by permaculturists all over the world. And I think he said that you know, there's been 11 or 12 translations of it at this point. You know, Joe Jenkins makes this very kind of simple but uh, poignant observation. Um, he says, the creation of human waste is a matter of human choice. We chose or choose to throw things away rather than reuse them. And he argues that human excrement is really only waste if we decide to discard it and treat it as something devoid of value. Um, but of course it has the potential to be many other things, including a source of energy, or fertilizer for useful crops, or simply organic matter that can feed the seas of microbes in our soils. And so today I think we need to move beyond our concerns and obsessions with food production and consumption and start thinking about how we manage waste, which presents many other problems um, but one's worth investigating to build a better food system in a sustainable manner. And so I think the foodies obsession, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, targeting foodies here, but I probably in some ways might identify myself as a foodie. Foodies obsession with pesticide-free, herbicide-free, fungicide-free, chemical fertilizer-free food only really looks at one part of the cycle. Like most good subjects in modern industrialized societies, foodies only concern themselves with production and consumption. And my question, half jokingly, is will we ever see a movement of shitties emerge alongside them? Because I think there's this whole other gap in our system um, that's really not being sufficiently scrutinized. Um, so, you know, reconnecting with our bodily waste might not help us address the current crisis um, ecologically that uh, many comment that we are facing, but I think it has the potential to push us toward a different way of thinking ecologically and even encourage a new sense of ethical engagement with our environment, what we perceive to, uh, to be waste. So in this new geological epic that's oftentimes referred to as the Anthropocene, perhaps rather than worrying about humanity taking over the earth, perhaps we should start taking care of our first. At the very least, it's something worth thinking about the next time you flush. Thank you.
and that was Dr. Nicholas Kawa, an anthropologist at The Ohio State University, talking here at the University of Louisville at the Department of Anthropology's lecture back in February of 2020 on the other side of our food system, the use of human waste as an agricultural resource. Well, with that, let's put poop aside and get ready for our community action calendar coming up in just a minute here on Sustainability Now. We are back here on Sustainability Now on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming wherever you are at forwardradio.org. Please go there to support the station. Become a volunteer today. We cannot make this radio magic without your dollars and your time and talents. So we need it all at forwardradio.org. Thanks for keeping us on the air for over four years running now. If you love programming like this, where else are you going to get a full hour on uh, poop? Huh? Only here on Forward Radio and Sustainability Now. Well, I hope you got your pencils sharpened and get your calendars out because this could be your week to take action for sustainability, my friends. Continuing this week and through all of August Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on Zoom, it's the Wild and Scenic Red River Fest taking place virtually on Zoom. The Kentucky Waterways Alliance is inviting everyone to join them for this virtual Wild and Scenic Red River Fest every Tuesday throughout the rest of August at 6 p.m. on Zoom, hosted by KWA's Red River Watershed Coordinator, Laura Gregory. You won't want to miss it. You can join it from anywhere. And it's the fourth annual, but first virtual fun and informational topics about Red River, Kentucky. Uh, the talk this Tuesday coming up on August 3rd is preparing for your paddle trip and paddle safety presented by Explore Kentucky Initiatives, Amanda Strunk. Uh, coming up next week on August 17th, it's uh, the Red River, a hotspot for fish diversity presented by Moorhead State University's David and Lynn Eisenhower. And on the 24th of August, botanizing and plant conservation in the Red River watershed with Native Plant Society and Kentucky Nature Preserves Terra Littlefield. And it wraps up on August 31st with caring for your household septic system presented by UK's Melissa McAllister and Wolf County Health Department's James Ed Wisman. It's free, it's family friendly, and you can learn more and register at kwalliance.org. 
Well, I'm really excited this week. It's Walking Wednesdays returning to the Louisville Water Company's Crescent Hill Reservoir. It's on Wednesday, August 4th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the beautiful Crescent Hill Reservoir on Reservoir Avenue at Frankfurt Avenue. Are you curious to discover what's behind the doors of the ornate stone building located in the center of the Crescent Hill Reservoir? Well, now is your chance to take a peek inside the iconic gate house with the return of walking wednesdays it's been over a year since louisville water has hosted this event which is free and open to the public on august 4th visitors are invited inside the gatehouse from 11 a.m to 7 p.m as a paired experience with the fun for the arts cultural pass offering a at offering over at louisville water tower park um, on september 1st the gatehouse will be open from 11 to 1 and 5 to 7 at all events louisville water employees will be on site to answer questions offer insights into the history of this unique building and make sure visitors stay hydrated with plenty of great tasting louisville pure tap designed by Chief Engineer Charles Hermony, the Reservoir and Gatehouse provided Louisville a 10-day supply of water when it opened back in 1879. The historic gatehouse plays an important role in the water treatment operations containing valves that control the flow of water in the reservoir. The three-story Gothic structure was designed to resemble a castle that Hermony saw along the Rhine River in Germany. Some noteworthy features to view include original hand-carved stonework, dramatic wrought iron stairways, and more than 20 500 terracotta ceiling tiles. Visitors can also view the exterior of the gatehouse anytime. The walking path that surrounds the Crescent Hill Reservoir is open year-round from dawn to dusk. You can get more information about Walking Wednesdays and everything else at louisvillewater.com. We're just coming out to the Crescent Hill Reservoir this Wednesday the 4th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Another reminder that the University of Louisville Garden Commons is a place for everyone, not just students, faculty, and staff, but community members are welcome as well. And we gather for summer workdays every Friday from noon to one. It's at the southwest corner of Strickler Hall, just east of the Speed Art Museum parking garage. And it's across the walkway from the biology department's beautiful Corfidge native plant garden, which is quite a sight to behold at this time of year. You can join us every Friday at noon to learn how to grow hyper-local, super-delicious vegetables, herbs, and fruits. Anyone can work in the garden anytime, but we gather together every Friday at noon throughout the summer to weed, water, and harvest. No prior experience is necessary. Tools and gloves will be provided. The Garden Commons is open to all, and everyone who comes is open, is welcome to share in the harvest, and it's a great harvest season right now. So go to louisville.edu slash sustainability to learn more. And while you're there, check out our compost church too. That's the UofL Community Composting Volunteer Days every Sunday from noon to 2 p.m. at 250 East Bloom Street. It's a it's just one block north of Cardinal Boulevard between Brook and Floyd Streets at the very back of the grounds lot that you enter from Bloom, Bloom Street on right by the railroad tracks there. You can come help us turn trash into treasure as we manage UofL's volunteer power 
Howard community composting operation. Dressed to get dirty, tools are provided. You can learn about worm composting, and everyone who comes is welcome to haul back some rich U of L compost for your own gardening projects, or maybe you got some potted plants that need a little compost. Well, bring some containers and a vehicle, and you can haul away some of your own. It's a weekly service opportunity throughout the year. For more information, go to louisville.edu slash sustainability. Hey, and while we're talking about that project and composting, this is a great opportunity to remind you that you can join the Louisville Compost Co-op. It's the only residential collection service in Louisville that will pick up and compost your food scraps and organic waste for just $20 a month. Residential members receive a weekly bucket pickup and drop-off at their home. Access to the quality compost produced by your own food scraps and the peace of mind that comes with diverting your food waste from a landfill where it would otherwise turn into methane, a supercharged greenhouse gas. In the first year of the co-op, they collected over 10,000 pounds of food waste, and it grows every year. Join at louisvillecompost.com, or you can dump your compost for free at the site there, 250 East Bloom Street. The large lot used for U of L grounds and maintenance work in the compost bin is towards the back of the lot. Details on how to join is at louisvillecompost.com. Compost.com. Oh, hey, and while we're talking about joining co-ops, you can join the Louisville Community Grocery. In 2015, a small group of community members and food justice advocates concerned about the increasing loss of downtown grocery stores and the lack of access to fresh, healthy food. We all came together with a mission to open a community-owned grocery store, and we are getting so close, my friends. We began exploring the possibility of a cooperative grocery to serve Louisville's urban neighborhoods. What started is a shared belief turned into a mission to open a community-owned store through a cooperative business model. We've worked with community members, UofL, and neighborhood organizations to research potential locations and services for the grocery. We've held community events, begun outreach campaigns to educate the community about cooperatives. Today, we are still working hard towards our goal of opening the store, and we need your help to get there. Individuals, households, and local businesses can all become co-owners of the grocery today to help us open the door to food justice tomorrow. Standard lifetime ownerships cost just $150, and if you have an economic barrier to ownership, you can choose to pay in five installments of $30. If you're a senior over 65, a youth under 25, unemployed, disabled, or on SNAP or EBT, or otherwise systemically disadvantaged, you can purchase a subsidized Advantage share for one payment of $25, no questions asked. Advantage shares have all the same benefits as ownership as standard price ones. So learn more and become a member or volunteer today at louisvillecommunitygrocery.com. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in. and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.